You are listening to and maybe even watching episode 50 of the Unnecessary Nonsense podcast, normally the podcast of two unqualified idiots rambling on sports topics they likely know nothing about for an indeterminate timeline in a hastily thrown together format. Brought to us this week by technology. Apparently this week we're going to use the microphone and a little bit of... Uh, video magic to go along with it kind of a special especially for episode number 50 now normally it's myself i'm carlos agazar and normally with me is my co-host dave turnbull but as i kind of alluded to last week dave turnbull is in the mid mid move which is kind of the excuse that he's using for i think he's running from the law personally and i think he's still in hiding but regardless i still wanted to have episode 50 because boy do i have some topics that i want to talk about this week and the thing is our friends at UFC and Dana White in particular are the gift to keep on giving, especially if you like uh, sports and you like comedy with your side of sports. Because when it comes to UFC, we really got to talk about a little thing I like to call Fight Island. And you can't just say it conventionally. You got to put a little oomph to it. You know, you'd be doing Dana White a disservice to just call it Fight Island. But I'm going to just call it the regular way the rest of the way. It, I alluded a little bit to it last week, but if you, for the uninitiated, if you're not familiar with uh, this story, is that Dana White has been trying to hold UFC 249 for what seems like an eternity. And it would have been this weekend had things gone normally. But almost everything conspired against Dana White and the UFC to make sure it happens, you know, global pandemics and all. And they weren't able to get the fight done. At the end of the day, uh, Medoff was not able to meet, and then they tried rearranging the card. And in the end, it turned out it was the mouse. The all-powerful Mighty Mouse from Disney and ESPN basically telling him, you know, just quit it. Stand down. Or as Dana White basically put it himself, stand down. And it was remarkable if you really think about it from the perspective of just the lengths that Dana White was trying to go to to get this event to happen. Going in so far as to to let everybody who will listen know that he was ready to do it. He was ready to go for it. He, it was going to happen, and it were not for the fact that he wanted to be a good partner and didn't want to upset the apple cart with that. And I say, sure, yeah, uh-huh. The power of the mouse is well known, but at the same time, the reality, I think, of it is that um, almost everything had that could have gone wrong with this whole card went wrong. And at a certain point, it would have been wise to kind of give up while you're behind. Uh, he was at the point where he was going to try to do it on basically tribal land in order to kind of circumvent what California had going on as far as orders to keep people away from social distancing and to keep people from trying to host events of any kind. So understandably, they weren't too thrilled about that idea either, even though technically he could probably have pulled it off. It probably wouldn't have been a very good move. And truthfully, I, w I wouldn't be surprised if the state applied a little bit of pressure saying, ESPN, if you do this, this is not a good move. This is not a good call. And ESPN probably felt the pressure a little bit to be able to hold him off a little bit. Now, the end result of all of this is that the event itself is postponed indefinitely. So I would be very surprised if UFC 249 actually goes off at any point, despite Fight Island. I had to do it one more time just because it, it, felt, it feels good when you say it with a little bit of extra oomph. But the thing is, uh, regardless of what happens with this ridiculous notion, and I'm going to talk about that more in a second. It was it was ill-fated, as I said, but it was it was purported, and I'm going to include links in the uh, in the description of either the podcast audio or podcast video, wherever you're going to catch it. And if you do catch the video one, I think the main thing you'll notice is obviously I'm going to be talking in front of the microphone, and I'll try to put some stuff around me to make it a little bit more interactive so you can see what's going on with it. But um, it was going to supposedly take place at uh, California's Tachi Place Casino Resort. That's kind of where they were trying to do, and Dana White was very grateful as far as the casino resort is. He'll probably try to put an event on there, and he alluded to as much in uh, his conversations. But California itself really wasn't thrilled about them trying to defy the shelter-in-place order that they had placed on on the most of the state and trying to use uh you know the casino that way is not exactly was somewhat frowned upon not surprisingly 
But at the same time, it's uh, it is kind of interesting, and it kind of left me in this state of looking at the situation, going, if if ESPN hadn't done it, to what lengths would Dana White have really gone? And that kind of leads us back into Fight Island, because when we're talking about that, what we're really talking about, just think about the notion again for the uninitiated. Let let's break down what this really is. It's it's supposedly the idea of trying to have like a self sustaining ecosystem inside of a either i don't know if he was renting the island or buying the island but either way he would presumably have an island and there you would build the facilities to be able to try to house the fights and then presumably you would bring the fighters in i guess by plane or maybe by boat i don't know what the idea would be but you'd be bringing in the fighters and i alluded to it a little bit on last week's episode but i see only about 12 billion things wrong with this concept uh chief amongst them okay fine you could buy an island yeah you got the cash or rent an island, whatever. You could get some facilities put together, I suppose. You could construct some stuff to get it. You could get an octagon out there. You could construct one of those. All of that I could see being done. And even the concept of uh, having an island is a way to try to quarantine off folks that are going to work on this in order to try to minimize the likelihood of an infected person coming in and then subsequently potentially infecting people. Even up to that point, it's still stupid, but okay, I could sort of get your point. It's not dissimilar to what MLB was kicking around with the whole idea of quarantining a bunch of players off in Arizona to try to play games. So it's not a distinct concept. That's why I linked it to kind of in last week's episode as well. But the thing is, and what I alluded to last time around, you're talking about an island. You're talking about all the people that would be required, the fighters themselves, any fight camps they have, any coaches, trainers, anybody that's going with them, every one of these people would have to be tested. And here's the problem. And I alluded to it already, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again because it really bears repeating. When you test them, you need to test them before they go on the island. And you need to have a negative test to make sure, you know, just taking their temperature. That's, that's WBE's version of testing. You know, you take somebody's temperature. Well, if somebody's asymptomatic and they, have, and they have the virus in question, that has done a grand total of nothing. It has accomplished nothing. Just taking somebody's temperature before putting them onto a plane, potentially with other people that could be infected, is not the best idea in the world. And even if you try to isolate the fighters and try to do all that, great, until one person that's infected gets on the island and wrecks your whole plan. And I don't think ESPN would want to be liable for that idea either. So you'd be going through all the trouble. Plus you need, if you're going to try to house it as a, a show, because it would be basically a television product. You're not going to have a crowd. So on your island... You need to have the fighters. You need to have their fight camps. You need to have trainers. You need to have all those people related to it. You need to have some people from some kind of an athletic commission, some kind of a governing body, because if these fights are going to be legit, if they're going to count for anything, either for titles or for ranking or anything, you need to have some people there who are going to preside over the proceedings and do the weigh-ins and do everything related to the fight. Unless you want to do the weigh-ins off land and then bring them over, like it doesn't matter. You're still going to need some of those people involved in some part of this process somewhere. And presumably the people in the athletic commission would want to be on said island to make sure everything is on the up and up. Plus you have the officials. Plus you have the judges. Plus you have everybody related to it. You're not doing this by Zoom call. That ain't happening. So the whole Fight Island concept is, in addition to being farcical, it's it's hilarious. It's utterly ridiculous. And it is truly testament to Dana White's insanity that he thinks that this is a viable alternative. That's something that he can actually try. I sure as hell want to see him try because I'm being extremely entertained. I'm not going to lie to you. But at the same time, it's it's one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard. And that kind of segues into what I was talking about earlier because I keep using the Vince McMahon comparable because I'm trying to decide. I'm genuinely at a loss right now. I'm trying to understand whether Dana White or Vince McMahon 
which one of them is actually the more desperate one? And I kind of, I do understand because they're both operating businesses and they're losing out on a ton of potential revenue. And the Vince McMahon thing is interesting. And I want to use this as a segue into the next story in a second. But the reason why the Vince McMahon thing is interesting is that he already kind of lost WrestleMania. He technically had a show that he called WrestleMania, but without a crowd, with a bunch of pre-taped, you know, cinematic kind of thing. Uh, this isn't a wrestling podcast, but it is valid because um, the WWE was included in the call with the different commissioners of different sports leagues uh, talking about the plan to bring, you know, entertainment back to the people. And uh, professional wrestling is one of those things that is still trying to put shows on, but the two main companies in North America are really taking two very different approaches to it. And uh, in Vince McMahon's zest to try to maintain and potentially keep himself from any legal hot water with his partners, he's... Uh, recently announced that he's going to try to get back to doing live programming again, which is um, at best ill-advised, probably reckless, and um, the best word that I could probably use is stupid. Um, you know, at least the idea of pre-taping a bunch of things meant that they could go do a bunch of shows, prepare stuff, have stuff in the can for a couple of weeks, and then be able to get everybody out of there. And then at the at bare minimum, you minimize the amount of extra travel that people go. You just get the people in that need to do their jobs. You get all the stuff filmed and you move on. But trying to do it live means you're going to have to fly people in, fly people out, fly people in, fly people out, and then consistently do the testing. And with the UFC problem as well as the WWE one, it's the same problem. You actually need real testing to be able to feel confident that you're actually putting people there who are not potentially going to infect somebody else. And I don't mean the kind of testing, again, taking somebody's temperature is not going to pass for testing. That's not actually going to work. You would need a test. And the thing is, even the fastest tests would still take like an hour. And again, that's not that bad. But do you have access to those, you know... One hour test, do you have access to a lab to be able to process the, because it's not good enough, even in the uh, Fight Island example, it's not good enough to give somebody a test and then find out a day or two later what the result is after they've already flown into the island. You need the answer before they get on the plane, before they fly to the island, because if you want to try to keep uh, any kind of a virus out, you have to make sure that everybody is clean before they enter the island, because that way, at least you've got a shot at keeping all kinds of contaminants out. That's your best bet. Nobody, nobody has to have any kind of a, any kind of infection, any kind of a disease, anything. Everybody has to have a full clean bill of health walking in the front door. And then and only then can you feel comfortable that all the people inside who presumably have also taken their tests prior to walking in the front door, then and only then can you feel like you actually are in a safe place. And the thing is, the reason why it's safety is like, even if you don't care about the people, which clearly they don't. Uh, but even if that's the case, then at the bare minimum, you want to do it from a legal liability standpoint, because uh, potentially endangering people is is not going to go over well. And your network partners are going to have a tough time justifying this in, in the premise of, oh, well, we needed it for live television. Well, you don't really need live television because the ratings are down whether it's live or not. With no audience, it's it's a less watchable show anyway. A UFC can still have fights because they already have at least a little bit of experience with this. The UFC Ultimate Fighter is basically done in a closed set up until the finale. So it's not a dissimilar concept. You can just have a handful of people around the octagon, you know, cheering on their, you know, their person they have a stake in, but it doesn't require a big crowd necessarily. It helps, you know, the crowd adds a certain ambiance when somebody's about to get knocked down or they're in trouble, but it's not necessary for them to have it. But the fact that he has to go off on an island or, uh, you know, uh, 
tribal lands or whatever, and he has to find one way to circumvent or another way to circumvent. And Vince McMahon is trying to get them hall passes, the equivalent of hall passes, so that if anyone asks, no, you're an essential service, you have to be here. So all these legal wranglings and trying to get this show on the road, it, it borders on pathetic. It really does. But, you know, speaking of Vince McMahon, that does lead us to the, the sad, sorry tale of the dearly departed now XFL. And I want to talk about that in a second. Now, this next story was actually going to be my lead in for the podcast because it was kind of a big story as far as the way things were going and not, it wasn't a surprising story, but at the same time, it was also, it's kind of a sad story. It's, um, I wanted to start off with the UFC one though, because even though I addressed it a little bit on the last podcast, it was a little bit more lighthearted. And at least I got to take a couple of pot shots at Vince McMahon and his nonsense. But this one is more of a melancholy happy trails for the XFL. And um, you really have to understand the story of the XFL to really grasp it. And by the way, if you are watching the video version, you're getting a nice little Easter egg. You know, so enjoy. Uh, if you're listening to the audio, then I may or may not have some XFL swag on uh, going on on the screen just to have a little bit of fun with uh, with anybody who watches it on the video version. But anyway, so the... Um, the reality is you, got, you kind of have to understand that the XFL story really isn't just the current iteration. The 2020 XFL version is really just the current, you know, the current chapter of what was an interesting tale. Because the XFL in this iteration had really no business being any good. If you go back to 2001, when you think about the first one, the truth is the first one was a joke as well. But the first one was a joke and it was always going to be in trouble because of Vince McMahon. Again, it goes back to the same guy. Um, Vince McMahon understands professional wrestling. He understands promotion. But he doesn't really understand football. He's not really a football fan at heart. So the first iteration was doomed from the fact that he got his paws on it. He tried to put like his whole marketing idea. You know, he even had, he had The Rock doing like a, a, promo, a promo at the beginning of the first X. XFL game. You know, he tried to do some weird stuff with the cheerleaders and did skits and all kinds of really dumb stuff that didn't make any sense. Rules that didn't make any sense, um, that weren't completely thought through, and they rushed it to market. And they basically made every mistake you could have made, got a lot of buzz and pop. And you have to remember, in 2001, Vince McMahon had just finished beating his big arch nemesis, WCW. And in the course of doing that, he probably thought he was invincible. You know, he was on top of the world. He had beaten his biggest competitor and he was now the de facto 100% number one professional wrestling organization or sports entertainment, if you prefer, the biggest organization in the world. And now he had, the world was his oyster and he had won and he was probably completely full of himself and he had just become a billionaire and all of these things were going right for Vince McMahon and then he decided you know what I'm going to make my own football league because he had never really succeeded in promoting anything that wasn't professional uh, wrestling related so this was his big opportunity to step it up to the next level and hey I'm Vince McMahon and this is my thing that I created but the problem is by doing that and trying to kind of um, create this hybrid product you had a football product that was too much football for wrestling fans and too much wrestling type of a thing for a football audience and you managed to make no one happy now i remember watching the original xfl because i watched all the games that were available in the original xfl and i understood what it was and i i tempered my expectations accordingly so i was never disappointed in the original xfl because it was impossible for me to be disappointed i knew what i was getting but the reality is that if you're a professional football fan you're expecting something and the xfl wasn't able to deliver that in its first iteration but anyway, in this version, though, this was supposed to be different. This time, Vince McMahon did something that 
frankly shocked me because I was a big proponent and fan of the AAF, the Alliance of American Football, because I thought that they had the right football people in place. There were a lot of things they did right, but what they never were able to do successfully, and it was kind of part of the postmortem that we had on this podcast related to it, what they did wrong was they never got the financing right. They never got the right people in. They never secured the financing. They ran it as kind of a startup and proof of concept where they were looking for that big... um, They were looking for that big deal, either the big investor or investors, or they were looking for the big television deal that would give them the income to make it sustainable. So they were trying to basically hang on long enough to be able to secure that television deal or secure that big investor that would sustain them until they got the big television deal, and then they'd be a fully viable, self-sustaining product. Seems like a good idea, except for the part where it's really hard to start a professional sports league. Well, now come in the XFL version 2.0. Well, first of all, the reason, biggest reason I thought it had no shot was because the XFL branding was really damaged the first time. Like, they really screwed it up about as badly as they could have. I thought if this man was going to take another stab at it, well, at least come up with a new name or come up with a new something. They they redid the logo. They redid the color scheme. I, although I, I really still like the the, uh, the red and black. I was a big fan of that. Um and I still have a, one, one of the footballs uh, that I got on eBay years later, like at a huge discount. I think I paid 20 bucks for it. I got one of the XFL footballs that I keep in my office. Uh, it's kind of a little souvenir. It's kind of a fun thing. I love these these kind of – that kind of trinket kind of souvenir. And I suppose that, uh, you know, I've got an XFL Dallas mug now So uh, for the newer version. So I suppose that will go in the same souvenir pile and I drink my coffee out of it. So it's just as well. I'm still going to get some use out of it. So the XFL will not die completely in this household. But nonetheless, XFL 2.0 had a lot of things that I thought were going to hold it back, including the fact that Vince McMahon was still involved. Now, with all that said, wouldn't you believe it? He actually managed to stay out of the way. He did two things that shocked me. Number one, he got football people in place. He let them have time to be able to actually build and develop a product, be able to actually develop a league where they took the time to be able to think through the rules, come up with some actual innovative kind of rules, whether they would have worked or not is kind of an interesting thing. They may have, in fact, solved the kickoff, which is something. Do not be surprised. I would say, if I was going to predict something, do not be shocked if the NFL at some point doesn't rip off the whole kickoff concept that the XFL came up with in the same way that the NFL eventually adopted the like zipline camera that goes over the top of the players because that was in the XFL before it became an NFL staple like it is today. And even I, I would be very shocked if they did the, the replay booth thing. Although that'd be kind of a cool idea. I don't know if the NFL would go that far, but don't be shocked if that kickoff rule, because there was a lot of folks that really love that kickoff rule. That might be the that might be the legacy of this second iteration of this league. But anyway, so the point is with the XFL 2.0, they seemingly did certain things that it looked like they finally got it right. They had some good football people involved in it. They seem to have built the teams well. They picked the stadiums in decent enough spots, including some you know venues that had availability. So they did that. They they didn't seem to be going too ambitious. They got some good television partners. Um, now, a key element to this, this is going to come up in a second in the story itself, but the key element to it is that they seem to have all the pieces in place to be able to potentially do it. And they seem to have a pretty decent little war chest because Vince McMahon sold a bunch of his WWE stock at a good price and was able to basically have hundreds of millions of dollars available to potentially take losses for years in order to get the thing sustainable. And this is a thing that has to be remembered. The whole spring football concept I don't know if anybody else is going to have a chance to give it a shot now. This might It might just be a failed experiment. I'm thinking these spring football leagues might be done in some kind of a cursed burial ground where they come up with the idea because something bad always seems to happen. 
But the point is, uh, with this one, it seemed like everything was in place. The only thing that was missing is something I'll talk about in a second. But anyway, the story in this case, the demise, and I'm going to call it the demise because there are some people that will probably hold out some hope. So the XFL originally, so there was two parts of the story. First, initially, it was reported that they suspended operations and laid off a bunch of their employees. And then 2021 was in doubt. Uh, so at that point, there was still a little bit of a window. But at the same time, if you're laying off all your employees, the likelihood of you being able to restart uh, was very unlikely. The whole situation with the pandemic basically torpedoed them because of the issue that I'm going to talk about now. What I was saying earlier. They had network partners. They had all these things in place. They had the merchandise. They had all the, and certain things seemed to be going very well. But when the league season got stopped halfway through because of uh, because of the pandemic, they found themselves in this bad situation where they've got a league where they were doing okay in so, as far as ratings and okay as far as attendance, and you know they were generating some revenue from some of these sources. But the the television deals were not based on them getting any rights fees yet. They were operating on a similar model to um, what WWE's competitor, AEW, was doing in the wrestling business when the, the Khan family, and Tony Khan specifically, decided to try to pitch uh, a wrestling program as part of a new wrestling league that they had created. Well, the thing is, they operated on a similar model where they were able to get TNT to agree to air. And I don't know if they had to pay for the airtime or if TNT kind of split the cost with them, but originally they had no rights fees. Well, they were able to be successful enough and show a viable product. And what they did in their viable product, this is in the wrestling realm. I know you're saying apples to oranges, but stay with me on this. But in they were able to show enough potential in the product that... TNT was able to say, okay, you know what? We'd like to keep you guys on board. We'd like to have you. And we're willing to offer you some rights fees. Let's negotiate. So in the end, they were able to negotiate an extension until 2023. And the numbers are still kind of reported. You know, they're not, I don't have the number in front of me and I don't have the contract in front of me. But the reported numbers were they were looking somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 40 to $45 million per year uh, as part of that extension. Well, here's the thing. If you're running any kind of an organization uh, that, that operates a television product and now you have an, an, a committed partner that has agreed to extend themselves into 2023 and paying you about 40 to $50 million a year in rights fees, well, that very much more than likely takes care of a lot of your expenses and puts you in a much more comfortable financial position. It means that even in this situation they're in now, they can do pre-tape shows, they can do a bunch of the little things. It, it's wrestling. It's different than a professional sport. Um because it is a form of entertainment, but they're able to record shows. They're able to do it. Now, the um, the viewership suffers because a live show is always going to be more interesting to people. And live uh, entertainment is really part of the, the value that a lot of these things offer. But the problem with the XFL was because they didn't have a television deal in the same way, they found themselves in this situation where now you've got this product that has no fans, so you're not generating any income at the gate, even if you had wanted to run an empty stadium. That wouldn't work because you're not making any money on television. So all of a sudden you're running, you're throwing all this money in, money in, money in, paying payroll, doing all of this. And you came in with all the, and you, you're getting eyeballs on the thing because you're actually on ESPN, you're on Fox, you, you're get, even though sometimes you're on FS1 and you know one of the other ESPNs, at least people can see your product. But you're not making any money from that. So even if ESPN or Fox is covering the cost for you, that's great. You're still basically dumping money in. Without that, uh, without that gate revenue, you're not generating enough. And in the modern sports landscape, gate revenue is not enough. It's the television rights deals that really do it. 
And the XFL got the double whammy that they had this situation come up at just the worst possible time. And at the same time that the parent company, the real parent company, WWE, it's supposed to be Alpha Entertainment, but it's WWE and it's Vince McMahon. At the same time that Vince McMahon lost tens of millions of dollars on not being able to host a real WrestleMania this year. And all the money he's losing for live events, all the money he's losing for the shows that, they're, that they would have been putting on right now. You know, as I record this tonight, it's Monday night. Normally, Monday Night Raw would be emanating from an arena somewhere where they would have sold tickets. They would have sold merchandise. They would have done all so low this. That money's not coming. They're doing it from, from a site, you know, in an empty arena that they own. But the point is that they're still, they've still got the same problem. They're putting on a show. The only reason they're even putting on the show right now is because WWE has rights fees with, T, with USA and with Fox that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars a year. That money is basically keeping WWE afloat as we speak right now. But with all that other money lost, Vince McMahon actually couldn't afford to keep another losing property on the payroll and keep it going. So that's where they decided to file for the second story. So the first story was that they were suspending operations. 2021 was in doubt. And then the update came, which kind of forced the podcast to happen today, was they filed for bankruptcy. So now they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing, listing both assets and liabilities in the range of $10 million to $50 million. So that offends, effectively, that closes, the, that puts the final nail in the coffin. Realistically, now some folks are saying like, well, chapter 11 is kind of for reorganization and all that, but I agree. But the thing is, realistically, you're not going to file chapter 11 bankruptcy. You're not going to be able to reorganize with no staff because you already laid off all the staff. Most of them, obviously, you've got some folks in the office that are still doing some closing, some winding down. And I'm sure they have to get rid of the product they have in their store and all these things. These things are going to have to be done logistically. But at the same time, there's I really can't see a scenario where they're going to be able to suddenly restart. And this is uh, an XFL brand that had already failed once. And this is a second time that it's failed. Now, this is not through fault of their own. That's why I wanted to give you that whole preamble at the beginning, because this, this time around, it really wasn't their fault. As far as uh, I could tell from a business perspective, they were doing basically what they needed to do. They were following that AEW model that I gave. They just ran out of time. They only got through five weeks of the regular season before they had to basically shut, shut everything down. And if they had been able to get on the field and put some fans in there and maybe run a couple more, you know, a couple more weeks of TV, and if, you know, uh, t if basically Fox or ESPN or whatever had come to the table with even a small television deal, they probably would still be out there. But at this stage, some of the players have already started picking up and signing with NFL teams, so they have less players available. Some of their star players that they had developed in that short period of time, some of their big money coaches are still getting paid or they want to get paid, and they're going to be some of the creditors in this uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing. Now they're in this position where the likelihood of you being able to restart this thing is pretty much zero. So I, I'm going to have to declare that at this time, XFL 2.0 goes the way of XFL 1.0, and we call it a day. But it is very much a melancholy, uh, happy trails to the XFL. It is a shame. I really do believe that spring football could have been really interesting. And for some reason, it's just snake bit. The, the whole concept, the AAF screwed up in its own way. They made their mistakes. And I, I really thought of the two, they had the better shot, I thought. But in the end, the XFL seemed to have all the pieces in place, but they just ran into a roadblock. The year 2020 has not been a good one if you're running a professional sports league and the XFL is a victim of that. Maybe if they had been able to get started one year earlier, they might have had enough runway to be able to get that television deal and they could have ridden that to ride out the storm. But as it is right now with no television money, there was almost no way they could get that thing restarted.
So one more small story that I wanted to pick up on, just for a little fun. This is more of a, again, back into the kind of lighter fare. Um, it's more of a stupid story and kind of a silly one, uh, but not surprising. Uh, apparently, uh, Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott are taking a little bit of flack, where apparently, allegedly, uh, they were caught having a house party against uh, stay-at-home orders in uh, in Texas. And um, this is one of those things where it's, it is a story, but at the same time, I... I find myself at this stage no longer able to be surprised at anything that involves the Dallas Cowboys. But I, and I guess from this perspective, I guess the Dallas Prescott thing is interesting because he's a guy who's looking for an extension. Uh, they already, um, they already called out, you know, the Cowboys said basically that they were going to franchise tag him, but that doesn't mean they can't work out a deal. There's still a little bit of time left to work out a deal. And of course, the timing of everything is uncertain with uh, the way that the sports calendar has been completely shaken upside down by uh, by everything going on. But at the same time, this feels like it's a bad look. Forget about everything. Forget about whether they, in fact, violated any kind of order. Forget about whether they hit the threshold, the magical threshold. Because I think a lot of people are spending way too much time trying to be wannabe lawyers, legislating. It's like, well, they said you can have up to 10, and I only saw 9. Who cares? That's not the point. The point is, it's a bad look. It's basically irresponsibility at a time where you... It's not that difficult to look responsible. All you have to do is not be looking like you're doing anything. You know, don't make it obvious. And also at the same time, there's no way, and I think TMZ was the one who reported this because apparently TMZ now is the breaker of news everywhere. Um, TMZ can't find out about this if somebody isn't recording it. Now, we're I know we're in the era of the smartphone. I fully embrace technology. I'm using technology right now to convey this message, both in the recorded medium and in the video medium. But at the same time, to a certain point, if you're going to do something that might even be borderline, and you're looking at a situation where your money's not secured yet. You might want to be like, okay, come to the party, leave the cell phones at the door, put them in a basket, do anything so that no one puts a recording device anywhere near you. Because you don't have to have somebody snitch on you by saying the words, just putting the video out into the world. At this point, and this is general advice for an athlete, general advice for a celebrity, general advice for a, a politician, general advice for you in your life. If there is a smartphone or a camera within 500 feet of you, assume that something you say or do is being recorded. You can pretty much guarantee that someone will be able to capture some kind of audio or video of you doing something, if you're doing something, if there's any kind of a camera near you. So at this point, don't do anything near a camera. It's not that hard. But apparently that's a little bit too much to understand. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more coming out related to this. I just thought I would bring it up because it was uh, a little bit of a story. And again, a little bit more lighthearted in the sense that, yes, it's irresponsible. Yes, it's stupid. And of course, it has to be the Dallas Cowboys. But I will say, uh, as much as Dak Prescott should get some flack for this, why is Ezekiel Elliott always involved when anything stupid happens with the Dallas Cowboys? In this case, it's not necessarily his problem because I think this is a Dak Prescott house party from what I understand. So he was invited, you know, as a teammate, but he's always around when something bad happens with this team. And it just always seems to be the case. And if I was, uh, you know, a Dallas Cowboy person, like I would just not want Ezekiel Elliott around me just as uh, just to avoid a bad luck charm because it's just bad things seem to happen when Ezekiel Elliott is within earshot of something happening. But yeah, I just thought this was kind of a silly story uh, and kind of a fun one to talk about for a couple minutes. Um, there's nothing else really that I wanted to talk about as far as main stories. Again, melancholy happy trails to the XFL. Uh, good luck to Dana White on Fight Island! 
had to get it in there one more time. But um, there were a couple of things I did want to bring up uh, just here at the tail end. This is not so much a story as much as it is a couple of recommendations, because right now we're at a time where a lot of places are in social isolation. Uh, you know, you may be looking for things to do. Obviously, the fact that ESPN was having a horse tournament uh, tells you how desperate uh, people are for some kind of entertainment, something to pass the time. And if you've exhausted all your movies and TV shows and books, I don't know how. Um, you're better. You're a better person than I am because I've got a stack of books and things to watch and see, and I feel like I've got plenty of time to do it, and I've got plenty of projects around my house to work on. So I guess, I guess in that sense, I'm lucky. So I'm not complaining. But just so we're clear, I'm not complaining about it. Um, but I'm just. I feel like I've got plenty to do to keep myself occupied and to keep myself somewhat quote-unquote productive productive is relative so i'm not gonna judge that but i do have some recommendations for you if there's something that you want to be able to watch and be able to kind of pass the time a little bit first one i'll offer you to you um sb nation on youtube does a lot of great videos on sports stuff but uh there was one series they've done restarted recently that it caught my attention and uh they're about three episodes into it it's going to be a six-part series on the history of the seattle mariners now you may be thinking to yourself why on earth if i'm not a seattle mariners fan would i care about this why, if I'm not a baseball fan, would I be caring about this? Well, I'll say to you, fair enough, but this team is really weird. And the fact that they can have a six-part series on a team that really has very little success should tell you how weird this franchise is. And I'll tell you, just from watching the first three episodes or so, really well done stuff. Uh, I'm going to try to include a link to one of these in the description of both the audio and the video version of this podcast. Uh, and literally the title of the first episode is, This is not an endorsement of arson, the history of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, it's a Dorktown special. So it, it's fascinating. I would say if you are any kind of a baseball fan, if you enjoy sports, check it out. I think I think it's a fun little series. That would be my recommendation to you, first one. And then the second one uh, that'll be coming up later on this week as I record, this weekend specifically, uh, there's going to be the documentary. If Again, if you're a sports fan, you don't have to be a fan of basketball. I'm not a big basketball fan myself. But um, they're going to be releasing on April the 19th the documentary, The Last Dance, which is going to chronicle the last uh, Chicago Bulls championship. And it's going to be a 10-part series. Uh, they're going to be releasing them over five weeks. There's going to be two episodes per week. So it's going to start on April the 19th with the first two episodes. I've seen a couple of previews and stuff. And if you got a 10-part series, just talking about one season, it tells you they must have gone into some serious depth with a lot of interviews and probably a lot of clips and things that you may not have seen before. So again, if you have any interest at all, on Michael Jordan, in the Chicago Bulls, in the NBA, or in sports in general, well, there you go. There's a, there's a good one. You're not going to be able to binge all 10 episodes all at once, but you're going to get two episodes at a time. So at the very least, you're going to be able to, over five weeks, have something to look forward to. Obviously, a lot of networks are doing a lot of classic games and things. So that's the thing. I've already talked about that a little bit on previous episodes, but I would throw, I thought I would throw those out to you. The History of the Seattle Mariners from SB Nation on YouTube. And then wherever you can get it, the, uh, the Last Dance the uh, documentary of the Chicago of the last Chicago Bulls championship before the first Jordan retirement, not sorry the second Jordan retirement. Not uh, talking about the. I don't think we're going to get much on the Washington Wizards years from the third Jordan retirement. But nonetheless, I think it would be a fascinating thing to check out. Like I said, even as a non basketball fan, I'm interested. I'm intrigued. It's caught my attention for sure, and I'd be interested in seeing what kind of depth they were able to go into with the ten episode arc. Uh, talking about one season. So I think that would be fascinating to see how they managed to put that thing together. 
So that concludes episode 50 of the Unnecessary Nonsense podcast. As that entails, we have 49 other episodes. If this is the first time you've ever checked this out, we generally have a little bit of a back and forth bantering conversation with myself and my co-hosts. Basically just an excuse for me to make fun of them for the majority of it. That's really what I created this podcast for, just as an excuse to make fun of them. But we do occasionally talk about sports-related topics. And then I go off on rants and basically just take unprovoked shots at Mike Trout, Tom Brady, and whatever else I don't, whatever else I don't like at the time. So that's if that kind of thing is fun for you, you can definitely check out some of our other episodes and then obviously our future episodes. I don't know if all of them are going to have a video component like this, but this is a little bit of an experiment that I wanted to try as something special for the 50th episode. What I will say, though, is just to conclude here, uh, we are in a couple of different uh, social media things. Uh, links are included in the description. A lot of that hasn't been updated in a while, although I'll try to include something for this one because it is a special episode. But otherwise, you can check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts for the audio version of everything, which there'll always be an audio version. And on YouTube, you can check out Unnecessary Nonsense Podcasts, where you can check out normally archived versions of all the episodes. But this one obviously is going to be a little special in the sense that it's also going to have the video component. So I'm going to try and include some stuff, hopefully on the screen as I've been talking, to make it a little bit more interesting for you. Just the same, I appreciate you listening or watching, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast.